Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm thrilled today to be joined in the conversation by Mark McGinley. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Melissa. Great to be here. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Mark, before we kick off, I'm just going to step through your bio, just so our audience know um, a little bit about you and your background, and then we'll jump into the conversation. So this series of Brave Feminine Leadership is titled No More Secrets, Extraordinary Leaders Share Their Journey from Good to Great. And Mark McKinley was born and grew up in Belfast, Ireland, and owned and managed a successful vending business and a small chain of restaurants before immigrating to Australia in 2003. When he started in an operations role at Couriers Please, a small parcel courier company wholly owned by New Zealand Post. His career through there moved into the roles of National Sales and Marketing Manager, Chief Commercial Officer, and then in 2014 into the role of CEO. In 2021, Mark was nominated by the CEO magazine for CEO of the Year. He humbly shared that he didn't win. Uh, he was, however, voted the number one Australian franchise executive in 2021, and Couriers Please is currently ranked the best courier service in Australia by CanStar. Mark has a wonderful reputation as a leader with excellent engagement results and an achievement record of promoting female executives. Mark, as I said, it's incredible to have you here. And I might just ask you firstly, for anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you take some time to share with us, you know, your background and who you are as a human being? Yeah, thanks, uh, Melissa, for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so like I, I just said there, I was born in, in Belfast and um, Belfast can really shape you as a human being, as a person, uh, in all sorts of ways, good and bad. Um, so from a business point of view, as, as you said there, I, I've always been from a small business background. Um, my, actual, my first role was working family business um, when I was you know, 17, 18, my dad owned, um, it was a wholesale drinks business supplying, you know, alcohol and, and soft drinks to the licensed trade. And in Belfast in those days, you know, in the early 80s, um, a lot of those licensed premises weren't actually licensed. They were like paramilitary run clubs and, um, he put me in a suit without any experience and I had to go into these clubs and I'm telling you, you know, there was barbed wire, bricks, cameras, um, you, you know, you were searched going in and out, uh, you were questioned as to who you were, what your background mm -hmm. was. And we supplied both sides of the community. So I had to go into some you know, really strange and scary places. Um, and as a result of that, I mean, I hated it. I really did. It was, you know, you had to go in really early in the morning before anyone arrived because anyone was there. They had a few drinks on board and they started asking you questions. It was a very, very tough time. In fact, one occasion, I was actually um, talking to the, you know, the bar owner about trying to get an order from him, and the guy came up to me and he says, "Is that your car outside?" And I went, "Yeah." He says, "You better move it because we're about to uh, blow it up." <laughs> Uh, so you know all, all sorts of scenarios like that, um, but as much as I dislike it, it's, it hardens you for any situation that you're in subsequently. So I had 
no fear about walking in anybody's boardroom or or, or uh, business ever since. If you can do that, you can do anything. Um, so yeah, out of that, then eventually started up. We, we I own my own businesses, and you know, all all, all was small business. Uh, and then myself and my wife opened a small chain of restaurants, and again, you know, very tough. Not the restaurant part, but the environment of owning a small business in Belfast. I mean, we opened uh, our first restaurant in, in a predominantly Protestant area, it was in, and you know, we we had visits for protection money. Uh, you know, you, if you want to work here, you have to pay pay us money. Mm. The other side would come to us. Um, you know, we were threatened that um, if we continue to supply the police with coffee or whatever, we were going to, you know, attack your home. So <laughs> you were getting it from both sides. Um, yeah. And that sort of calmed down a bit over the years. And then we opened up our third restaurant in a, in a potentially thriving area when the peace process happened. Um, but what happened was uh, the peace process wasn't all it was meant to be at that time. We opened a brand new restaurant and within a week there was rats right outside the door of the restaurant you know so that that sort of it hardens you it, it shapes you you know when you're putting your own money in, in, into things that you know it's your mortgage it's your livelihood on the line it it's it's me a great stead when you actually move into the corporate side of things which i'll talk about shortly mm. So yeah, that was that was one of the reasons we we eventually emigrated, you know, to Australia because it, it 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 is a tough environment to run your own business. Like it's definitely improved. I'm, I'm talking twenty years ago. Um, so yeah, we I visited Australia. My my brother's been living here for you know thirty five years, I think. I visited him for the millennium, um, which was phenomenal. I mean. It was about two million people maybe on the shore uh, for the millennium in Sydney. I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I think it was like 20 arrests. And they were for like minor, you know, drunkenness. Yeah. You know, I, I find that remarkable. And then we came back for the Olympics in 2000. And like, that was sensational. I mean, um, there was no cars. Everyone who didn't want to be there had left. It was free transport. All these people in these colorful shirts telling you where, where do you want to go and helping you wherever you needed. The weather was phenomenal. We got to see Kathy running in the 400 meters, which was easy. Um, so myself and my wife were on our way to just one of the events uh, on the Manly Ferry. And um, we just looked at each other. You know, this isn't a bad way to go to work. It, it, on the Manly Ferry, and as I said, just recently, um, that's my new commute to work, is, is being on the Manly Ferry. So it, it, it took me 20 years, but I got, I got there in the end. You got there, yeah. But leaving Ireland was 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 tough, but financially it was really tough because we had all these businesses and we had nothing lined up in Australia, no job lined up. We, we were going to set up a business in Australia and... Um, Oh, 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 we were we were sort of relying on the on the um, you know the franchise we franchise out the restaurants and we were to grow those but you know once you're not once you're not in the country people just go well why am I paying 
you money when you know you're in Australia. So that was really difficult. And um, my next door neighbor actually was the CEO of Couriers Please, and we got on really well. And he said, "Look, there's a there's a job, there's an operations job um, in Sydney. If you fancy doing it while you're waiting to set up your own business." So yeah, I temporarily, I took this as a short-term job. <laughs> I was there 18 years, um, working for Couriers Please. But as it, working for Couriers Please over those 18 years, a lot changed. I mean, it wasn't the same job, the same drudgery. It was, you know, we were owned by New Zealand Post, then we were owned by DHL, and then we were owned by Singapore Post. E-commerce came in at, you know, during that period. So that just revolutionized the logistics industry. Uh, it, was, it was such a transformation from old school logistics to e-commerce. Yes. Um, so yeah, we were always evolving. I was always evolving. Uh, I wish I had a known what I learned in the corporate environment to apply to, you know, when I was running my own businesses, because I was just running my own businesses. Um, you know, ad hoc, just your feeling, your gut, you can make any decision you want. There was a lack of process, you know, all the things that you learn in corporate, which sometimes can hold you back, actually, you know, the governance, uh, et cetera. There's a fine balance, isn't there? Fine balance. But I'll tell you what I did do coming into corporate was taking that entrepreneurial spirit into a corporate environment where, you know, I've been in environments where it's so corporate, so rigid, so processed that nothing gets done. Yes. And so that was the good part of it. The good part of that entrepreneurial background was to take it into a corporate environment. Um, but you're right, it is a combination. It's a tricky balance between the two. Um, and it depends where you are in the cycle of your business. Are you in growth mode? Or are you in, you know, Cost cutting mode, and I've, and I've been through both actually, and I can tell you which one I enjoy the more. <laughs> so you're, um, so you're obviously a loyal sort of person, having a temporary position for eighteen years. Um, that comes yeah. out quite, quite strongly. Um, I would just love to ask, um, you know, when you and I connected, one of the things you shared with me that when you started at Couriers Please, it was quite a male-dominated sort of culture and industry. What did you I guess going in, what what struck you? And this is a long time ago now, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it it, it, it was a very male dominant environment. I mean, it's not career space, but the industry still is. I mean, it's seventy percent male today. Uh, you know, heavy haulage logistics. Only two percent of females are driving trucks. Um, so it doesn't it didn't didn't have a great image for females. Now, there, of course, there's lots of exceptions. Don't get me wrong, but plays and you know very male dominated all male leadership team very curiously at that time was very operational all so that oppo sort of environment very male the warehouses would have had you know inappropriate calendars and all you wouldn't see any of that today and, and then probably any warehouse but, you know, we're talking 2003 in australia <laughs> i'm straight most PC people, especially in logistics, they're, you know, they're very forthright, call it a spade. Um, so yeah, that, that was the environment I came into. Um, and it, like, that, that evolved within CP, certainly, um, naturally. Now, I, 
obviously when I became CEO, I had more control over what, what, what we could do, but, um, but I have seen it in other companies, other logistics companies. I mean, boys clubs still in place. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people, been around now 20 years in this industry, and I've seen it in certain companies. Um, I'm not going to name them, but uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of boys club mentality and uh, all that goes with that, you know. Um, but we had some really good leaders at CP, really mixed, actually. I've seen the best of both worlds. I've seen, sorry, the, you know, best and worst. I've seen that boys club mentality come into our business and I've seen it go and I've seen phenomenally empathetic leaders. So I've seen both sides of it. Um, but yeah, once you're in control of it, then you can make more you you can make more decisions you can be more proactive not your you know we'll circle back around to that mark i was just wondering if i can ask um you know the question um that i'm keen to ask everyone in this series is around whether leaders are born or made do you have a perspective on that throughout your career oh look i come from the made perspective just simply because um like there may be some genetics involved in it or maybe a confidence thing some people might have but I mean you can't be a leader without experience you know you can be you need experience you know you need to continually learn and develop and you know training is important I mean every day you know I try you try I try and learn something so I'm constantly doing um you know, read, read, LinkedIn is now a great source of, of information. I, I, for me, anyway, I, I look at a lot of global trends, whether it's on leadership or my own particular industry. Um, you know, I've recently done a, a director's course there at the AICD. You know, if I'm going to, going to become a director, I'm not arrogant enough to assume that I know everything to be a director. So uh, I learned a lot out of that course, and, and people who went to that course were phenomenal, and they all wanted to learn as well. You know, one, one of the um, one of the presenters of that course was asked that question, and, and she she said, "Look, the fact that you're here, you know, means uh, you're going to be a good leader because you want to learn." Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely um, experience, learning, and development, uh, and training as well. I mean, you think about managing gen says and millennials so if you didn't learn or train or develop how would you you know how would you just walk in one day and, and treat gen z millennials the same way you would treat you know some uh, other and australia is so multicultural that you know speaking of leadership of women it's, there's women there's young people there's it's different cultures different personalities it's it's a it's a broad breadth of leadership skills that I think you need you know to um, to develop, and I don't think you're born with that. So, Mark, what would you call out? And I dare say you've shared some, given some of your early working experiences in Belfast. Um, but what would you call out? You know, if I said, are there two pivotal moments in your own career that shifted your leadership from good to great? What would come to mind? Well. I'm not <laughs> good to great. <laughs> uh, let's just say uh, something that may be proud of. Okay, so um, okay. look, the, the, 
the thing I'm most proud of at CP, um, there's two things really. One is the connections I had with the people. And um, when I left CP, uh, you know, it was like a funeral, not, not in the sense that I was dying, but people tell you what to think of you. Uh, <laughs> you <know? laughs> uh, and I was really touchy, you know, people, like no one's going to come up and say, oh, you had a great effect in my career or my life. But if you're leaving, they might say something like that, you know? So connections with the people and some of the, what they went on to do in other in other industries or other businesses, but COVID really is what I'm most proud of because when COVID hit our industry, it was like like a lot of others. First of all, we were fortunate that logistics, uh, sales, uh, e-commerce went through the roof. Yes, other industries like tourism and travel, etc., had you know massively negative effects. We had the opposite. We're you know our business more than doubled overnight. Mm. Our, main, our main priority in the early days, and it's easy to say now, but in the early days was to keep keep our people safe. Yes. But the leaders that grew up in, our, in my business from that um, was phenomenal to see. We'd set the culture that expected that we would look after our people, you know, and we had teams all around Australia working such long hours um you know weekends because we couldn't hire anyone so we had all this volume of freight that we needed to get out in this environment where we had social distancing you know we we, we introduced all very very quickly a lot of covid protocols that within the first few days it took others weeks and months i mean we we got our people tested privately you know uh, every week mm-hmm. um, we but it was really the, the, how the team stood up. And when I left, you know, a lot of the messaging that people, you know, were thanking you for was around around that. Um, you know, we have daily we had daily briefings, and everyone jumped on, and everyone knew we were on the same page. And we paid. We're a franchise model, so we said we weren't going to leave any franchisees behind. That if if their areas affected, we would get employment in other areas. We give them pay. COVID, we give them extra COVID leave because what we didn't want to do was financially because we had, we had 900 franchisees which are all independent business people that you know if they don't work they don't get paid so we did we wanted to encourage them to look after themselves and their and their fellow workers rather than take the risk of coming in for financial reasons so if, if anyone didn't feel well we said we'll pay you, we'll pay you so we we did a lot of that, and you know that really stood us in good stead, and it it spoke to the culture in the business as well. That that's what our leadership team expected us to do, not to get you know make more money, uh, which is what by the way you know when I was talking to some of the people in Sing Post, they not left, but um, you know they were it's all about money. You know how do we how do we take advantage of the situation, you know? Um, I think you can make money in an, in an ethical and uh, sustainable way without, without impacting your employees. Because the other thing, Melissa, is that they'll do that once, they'll do it for a period of time. They'll work those weekends, they'll, they'll, they'll do all, they'll, because of their loyalty to the company and their passion for the business, but you have to reward them. and. 
um, that's a combination of um, you know financial reward and uh, encouraging them to take time off and all that sort of stuff, which is and mental health it was as important as physical health. So we try to do all that at the same time, um, and I th- and we did, you know, and so we that was the combination of years of of cultural change. So let's talk about that in terms of, you know, what were some of the pillars of that cultural change? And I know you had some some fantastic results at Great Place to Work. Share those with us as well, Mark. Yeah, so we did the Great Place to Work survey. It was a global um, survey, and there's, there's global metrics, um, which you're benchmarked against. So we got world-class results for certain categories not i'll tell you which ones we didn't get so it gives you a bit of context um so for safe place to work as regards to um you know bullying equality um safety um all, all those cultural metrics we got you know in the high 80s where the, the benchmark might have been 84 85 um so everyone felt safe everyone felt valued um and thought they were being treated fairly that was really important now the ones we didn't do so well were you know pay was is always an obvious one and uh you know things like equipment uh you know we we needed you know a tech refresh and things like that there so people were frustrated with that um but we knew that but it was really um I think if you got the other bit right, that people are engaged, will recommend working for CP, that that you can fix the other things easier. I think you can get your laptops, you get develop your technology, but that's a lot harder to do. Um, and yeah, we were, we were very proud of that. And obviously, it, it was much better than the previous few years. So you know, we had we had done things. Um, you know, I, I had a phenomenal HR lady who you know. We worked together on a lot of the soft, um, the soft skills around leadership and development. Um, you know, fle- pre-COVID, we were incredibly flexible um, working place, and I think this is really important when we come to speak about uh, women common CEOs are, are being encouraged to stay in the workplace, etc. We had, um, I'll give you two or three examples. We have one lady who, um, I'll, I'll say her name, because you won't mind, Gemma. Gemma was my first hire way back when, before I was CEO. She, for some reason, leaves her kids to school like at six in the morning. And, you know, she started, so she started, sorry, her, her, her husband both started really early in the morning. So she started work at CP at five. Because that's what mm-hmm. she wanted to do. Because she wanted to leave at a half, two or three to pick okay. up was good. So we let her do that. And um, another lady wanted to leave her kids to school. So she didn't come in until half nine. We didn't, didn't, didn't bother us. Um, we had... Uh, a, a, a Gemma, by the way, her and her family send me happy birthday videos to this day. Uh, I, she's from the Philippines, and I'm Tito Mark, Uncle Mark. And her and her whole family will sing these songs. Happy birthday. Oh, 
her children. Um, yeah, she calls me best best boss ever. Um, but the reason is because she worked so hard, so passionate. I saw the, the other lady that I knew they were going to get their work done. It doesn't bother me whether it started at half nine or five. Some roles you can't do it on, to be honest, but yeah. these, these you could. Yeah. We had other, and these were just coincidentally ladies, that um, one of the ladies' son was really, really ill. And she said to me, like, I'm going to have to pack in my job and look after him. Uh, and we just said, no, just work when you can. So we, we kept her on full pay. And uh, this lady was phenomenal, is phenomenal. And then she just did what she could. And we just accepted that, that, you know, she's not, she wasn't always available, but so that was about three or four months of that, you know, and she's back and she's still working there now. And, you know, she's been promoted twice since then. And we'll never leave for, you know, cultural reasons because of, of that loyalty that we showed her. Another lady, her father in France and um, we let her work from France for uh, three or four months while, while that was happening. But it was the right thing to do because morally it was the right thing to do but also financially it was the right thing to do well we're going to let these people leave and recruit and train and, and then these phenomenal people go and work for someone else and, you know so that that was the culture we had in the business and everyone understood that so therefore that they know that they can do those sort of things with their teams um you know they know that they can be compassionate with someone in their team that i know nothing about because you know he's doing it, so I, we I can do it. I don't need to know let, let someone take an afternoon off or. Um, and it's funny, and this is all pre-COVID, but since COVID now, it's obviously it's accepted that um, everyone wants that flexibility now. No one's going to go back to work five days that I can see. Um, it's uh, the people love the flexibility. Yes, they're going to walk for a walk or whatever, but it's as long as they do the uh, results. Or there at the end of the day, that's how you're going to get judged, not by how, how long you work in the office or, you know, if you're not at your desk, you're not working, that, that, that sort of mentality. So if you remove all that, then it, it can create an environment where people are safe, can feel safe and valued and, and can grow. Congratulations on those results because they're, you know, they're extraordinary results that you should feel very proud of. Do you feel um, on your own career journey, you know, have you had inspiring sort of mentors or sponsors along the way? Um, I've had a lot of good, I've a lot of good people, a lot of good people within our industry and others that have learned things off. Um, <laughs> I've also come across a lot of people that, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to go near that. Um, so not, not one individual as such, uh, but a lot of, I've worked with a lot of good people. Um, and you know, I've, I've worked with entrepreneurs who are really brilliant ideas, but can't execute. And I've worked with really good executors who are a wee bit less entrepreneurial. Um, so you, you just learn a bit of everyone. Uh, there's a lot of phenomenal leaders in the world. Um, well, maybe not as many as there could be, actually. <laughs> um, you know, it, I'm thinking politics here more than anything. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's listening and they're, you know, can I make it to the top? Well, 
you know, Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister of the UK, so, you know, <laughs> there's hope for all of us, you know. <laughs> Mark, can just staying on that theme then um, of sponsorship, do you believe that you need to sponsor females differently than males in the workplace? Um, it's a very, very good question. My style, for what it's worth, and I, you can do that on a small team. You know, we have 1,200 employees, but my team's, uh, you know, eight. And uh, I think I try to treat people as individuals. So, yes, they're female, but they could be introverts, they could be extroverts, so they, they could be treated differently. I mean, my management team, for example, um, at one time, it was 80% female. <laughs> uh, I had one white middle-aged guy who was sort of, you know, he was a token token, token guy, you know. Um, but, you know, I had a, a, two, two of those people didn't drink, for example. Um, so why would I have, uh, you know, after work drinks event when two of them don't drink? Um, mm -hmm. So I didn't want to create that culture. So, you know, we would have a breakfast or a lunch or, you know, do something that, that's inclusive. Um, you know, we had uh, one of those ladies was a Muslim and all one, as I say, was, didn't drink. And then, you know, um, one of them was young. So just, I think younger people needed to be, uh, Gen Z, millennials I mentioned earlier, need to be treated differently. Yeah. Uh, but what, what I will say about, working with women, sponsoring women is, is to try and remove the barriers where you can't. Now, one of the big things, uh, you know, big picture things is why women don't go on to become CEOs. And it's, it's obviously not a talent issue. Um, it's, it's opportunity and an environment, which is, and I think as leaders, it's up to us to create an environment of equality and fairness that those female leaders can can come through without having to be different. Because mm. uh, you hear a lot of women saying, you know, um, I have to be twice as good as as, as the man. And that, that, that's true, right? It, wrongly, it is true. But as a male leader, you can create an environment where that's not true and it's, it's equal. Uh, how, how do you do that, Mark? Well, you can't do it proactively. So... Like I said, um, when I first became CEO, I, I, the first thing I did actually was look at the pay of, of all the females. Sorry, all of us, not females, the staff. Yeah. And three females were, you know, dramatically underpaid compared to the males. So uh, does this go to Singapore, this podcast? Because <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I did was give them all uh, like 30% pay rises. And two of them increased their roles, you know, they promoted them in effect. Um, now, that happens male and female. I did it because it was fair. It wasn't a male-female thing. It's just fair, right? Why, why is she doing that job for that money and he's doing that job? So, um, but I also learned that some people, were, it was one of the guys nearly getting the same money as me <laughs> so uh, you can't take money off people unfortunately but um it, it was a fairness thing so you can't be proactive on the pay side of it uh, you can 
and you need to do that, I think, and continually review that. But one of my pet hates is this isn't a male female thing is people from within a business are never valued as much as somebody coming in from outside. Absolutely. I've seen that, you know, um, such and such comes from, uh, he's, he's from another business, another industry, and he asks for more money and he gets it. And he comes in and the pay grades, he, he's way, he or she is way above the person who's there because that person is valued at a certain level. And they'll get the three percent increase or whatever year, but they'll never get what, which is you know a big bump. So I was able to do that when I was CEO and, and made some hefty increases to sort of balance out pay grades. And I think that's really important. As they create the environment, if females, especially and, and statistically this is true, um, are the primary care domestic duties. Yes. It's right or wrong, it's a fact. And um, you need to take that into account, I think. Um, and if you can, and some people can, some people can't, provide you know, childcare assistance where available. Childcare needs to come down in price as well. So those people yes. don't feel financially um, restricted about continuing their career. Mentorship is, is, a, is a huge thing as well. Um, and and yeah, look, I think leading by example is another important aspect of it. But yeah, look, basically give an opportunity. I think if you give opportunity. Well, that was one of the things that you said to me, Mark, about um, being deliberate about making sure that women did get opportunities. How did that happen? Like, what did that look like? Well, when we had candidates, we wanted to make sure there was a fair representation of, of, of candidates for roles. So there's two ways. It was We were promoted from within. We had phenomenal female leaders from within. And uh, I mean, Curry's Place has five state managers, you know, Sydney, uh, Melbourne, sorry, <laughs> Victoria, New South Wales, uh, South Australia, West Australia, Queensland. And we never had any, for example, we never had any female uh, branch managers. Very operational roles, PL responsibility, general management. Um, we've now got three. So three out of the five are now, I say we have left some people. Uh, we've um, three female leaders in those branches. And, you know, those sort of, um, that's the path to becoming a CEO. It's, through that PL responsibility, general management. Traditionally, anyway, I you know I, I, have a phenomenal, I had a phenomenal HR lady who I think would be an amazing CEO. Um, but whether you know she wants to pursue that career or you know, yes. sometimes you have, to, you have to leave your comfort zone. So I actually offered this lady, she's in HR. I said, look, if you want to go into branch management, because that'll help you become the CEO. The offer is there for you. So you can identify talent and encourage it and nurture it and, and position it as well, where you can. It's not always possible, but um, skills are transferable. When it comes to leadership, I think EQ is a huge, huge part of that. Absolutely. Can I ask, Mark, along the way, one of the things that, um, you know, I often love to ask successful leaders 
is did you ever feel um, any sort of self-doubt or, you know, what's labelled as imposter syndrome at any points in your career? Talking about feminism to you, that, that would be one uh, such time. <laughs> um, yes and no. Look, don't get me wrong, I, I, have no, uh, I have no ego when it comes to what I know and what I don't know, right? Um, and that's one thing that you do read about men and women, actually. Men will bluff their way and they've got this confidence that, you know, you read that some women don't have. And I'm not sure how you address that. I think maybe with seeing phenomenal female leaders would, would, would help with that. But um, yeah, I, I, I joined the CEO Institute. I'll give you an example. And, yeah. Um, like a networking um, environment, male and female, where CEOs or executives just share their experiences. And I can tell you now that every it's like a therapy session. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you any stories. Well, I can't give you any examples, but it's all confidential. But, you know, the lack of uh, what do we do here? What do we, can anyone help with this? Can you advise with that? And it's normally around leadership. It's normally around people, you know, I need to get, I need to move someone on. It's not working out. How should I do it? I need to, you know, I need to change my team. So, and I'm the same. Um, but some people don't recognize that they don't know everything. And I've seen that as well. I've seen the Messiah complex leaders who have become successful. I always think there's a difference between financial success or coming up with an idea and leadership. Mm -hmm. But with uh, founders who have got this really smart idea they're really clever and you know their company is successful the smart a lot of the smart ones realize they can't run the company or lead the company so they sort of take a bit of a back seat but there's others that think they know everything and i've seen that firsthand where everything coming out of their mouth is like you know handed down from moses you know everything. um and I, I really hate it. My pet hate is arrogance and um, people who think they know everything. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't suffer from imposter syndrome because I, 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 I don't, you know, I know what I don't know, which is a lot. <laughs> and nobody does. And um, the, the key is getting the best talent. This comes back to your, the, the whole crux of this matter. To run a successful company, it has to be diverse. You know, you need to hear different points of view. And in Australia, it's such a multicultural business. You need to hear from females, from young people, from the people with experience, from different cultures. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to reach out to people. You're not going to communicate with people. Um, so that's really important. And having the nice to realize that you don't know everything and you need help and you want to get super talented people in, um, and then once you get them in, you know, you need to pay them and, and reward them. Um, I was reading the Netflix uh, story the other day and, you know, his, his motto is get superstar people and pay them superstar wages. And I agree with that. Not so much the wages, but <laughs> you don't know. The, the... Business has got what it can afford though, right? So, you know, it's, it's relative. Yeah, it is. And, um, you do have to find other ways of rewarding people. And it's, it is, 
you know, recognition, um, you know, all, all the all the standard stuff, employer of the month and recognition. And I was able to, you know, um, to give, you know, things like days off and, and uh, wellness days, things like that, you know, and, and just create an environment. When we did the, um, the survey, you know, everyone loved their own team. Everyone always loves their own team. Oh, I love the guys I'm working with, but I don't, I don't like those guys or, you know, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and that's quite common as well, right? So, um, yeah, it, it, communication is, is a huge, huge issue. You, know, yeah. you um, having had your own successful businesses in Ireland before you moved to Australia, had it always been on your radar that you could be a CEO and run a company one day? Like, did that ever... No, I, I, I never seen myself get into corporation. Uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland, it's just, it doesn't really have a big corporate culture. Well, it didn't then. So it's a lot of small businesses. Every Everyone, I play football, and everyone on my team all own their own business or work for themselves, solicitors, plumbers, dentists, doctors. Um, I, no, I never, ever uh, thought it would... Um, Working in corporate or be a CEO, CEO, CEO of my own business. Yes, this is different. Uh, but no, never, never did, never aspired to either. Uh, just sort of evolved. But really enjoyed it actually. And um, you know, you you come back to the imposter syndrome. Um, I think it was Michelle Obama was talking about Barack Obama. He he had it all his life. And when he became a lawyer, he thought, oh, I'm out of my depth here. And then he, he be, you know, he got into the office and he looked around and um, they're no better than me. And then, you know, he became a senator, same thing, president. And then he said, oh, I was really intimidated by all these world leaders. And then he, <laughs> he meets them all. He goes, well, you know, they're no better than me. And uh, there's phenomenally clever people out there, way, way, way smarter than me. But it doesn't mean you can't add value. Um to you know to your business um yeah it's that imposter syndrome is uh it's a good it's a very good question but i think you just go for the job you're offered just keep going and you'll figure it out when you get there you know excellent advice um yeah excellent advice mark mark um i'm i'm reflecting back on you on the manly ferry with the wind blowing through your hair you know, living. <laughs> I had more of it, and it wasn't grey. Well, it wasn't as grey back in those days. <laughs> well, here you are. You know, here you are living the dream uh, that you imagined. You know, twenty or so years ago, before you moved across to Australia. And I don't think you need to have any fears at all about imposter syndrome talking to me about, you know, the opportunities to advance female leadership because you've got a track record of doing it. And you know, I think the opportunities for, you know, so many. Um, other leaders to understand um, some of the ways that you can have a direct impact. I have the final question I'd love to ask you that I do ask everybody, and that is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? It's a tough one for a man to answer. Um, I think there's some phenomenal... Uh, a lot of women 
of now taking control of our own destiny. So whether they couldn't get through the corporate world or whatever, I'm in an industry e-commerce where you know over 50% of the leaders are female, or, or of the business the CEOs are, are female, young female, decided, I mean, Jane Lou, for example, at Showpo, you, you get her on your show, she, she'll talk for an hour about herself and 55 of those minutes will be how she failed and made mistakes and, and she's phenomenal. Right? And there's a lot of women like that and her team are female. You look at um, Reese Witherspoon in, in, in Hollywood, set up our own production company for females, female writers, directors. There's a new football team just being assembled in, in the New States, Angel FC. I interviewed the CEO. Oh, oh. Yeah. fantastic. Brilliant. You know, that sort of stuff. And then, as I said earlier, I think for, for males who have got any sort of control or influence is to make sure, and they can do this within their own area, create an environment where females can succeed. Um, and as I say, it's a fair thing to do, it's a right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do as well. Why would you not want, um, like the other, the other one came to, I'm sort of following her at the moment, is Carol Tomei in my industry. Well, obviously Christina Holgate. Yes. Obvious, you know, um, she's become a bit of a poster lady for, uh, you know, the white, uh, the white jacket um, and she was treated terribly by a bunch of uh, men and uh, really post but that's another story but carol tomei you know um first ceo of ups um in 114 years um and it's just changed that company around in a very very short period of time um she's done a phenomenal job they told me great place to work uh, she was 49% of people wouldn't recommend UPS uh, as, a, as a place to work. She's already changed that. You know, she's got a 60% approval rating. Mm-hmm. And it's by um, empathy, uh, managing people, one of the things she did was, um, and the, the, there's no financial rewards. It was tattoos were banned uh, from UPS, long hair was banned and all that sort of, she just removed all that. So now you could come to work as yourself, don't pretend to be someone else. And she got a 10% bump in approval just by that, you know? Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of pheno- phenomenal role models for females out there. And I think it is harder for men, um, but they're the ones in control in a lot, of, a lot of areas as well, right? So they just need to, you know, sometimes get out of the way, but create an environment where everyone, not just females, but, you know, minorities and, and all, whoever can, can be, can succeed, right? Just, it's no barriers. Uh, and yes, you're going to have to be proactive as well. I think with, you know, um, recognizing some of the barriers and removing them, if, if you can, if it's in your control, mm. but as I said earlier, around flexibility, creating the culture, you know, remove, you hear stories out of Canberra recently where it was a boys club where a lot of decisions were made after work in the pubs and the bars where females didn't feel comfortable going to that and then they were excluded. You know, so you can control that. You know, you can stop that sort of thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I obviously don't have all the answers. It's quite, quite, 
That's why you've got a podcast for you. <laughs> we'll keep on asking. We'll keep, keep on, on asking. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for joining the conversation. You know, you're an incredibly humble leader. Um, I'm sure our audience's mind will wander to where you're going to show up next uh, in case you're planning to be a CEO somewhere else and they can follow. So thank you for joining our conversation. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Melissa. It's been great. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.